This is Bonjour Hi, the Good Girls and Bad Gays edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, Phoebe has an extended conversation with Hadley Freeman, the author of Good Girls, a book about her personal experiences and reporting on anorexia, and we get into all sorts of other shenanigans, as always. Phoebe, how's it going? It's going well. Avi, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, you know, it's uh, still Pride Month, and I saw this article, and uh, I really would love your take on it. Um, the headline is, he racked up millions of likes for being a proud gay Haredi, then he was outed as a fake. Um, and it's about this uh, young Jewish man who uh, dressed up, I guess, in Hasidic drag. So fa- fake in which sense? Fake fake gay or fake Hasid? Fake as a Hasid. He was an actual gay individual who was okay. on social media and making all these videos as a Hasidic individual and being out and proud. Um, and then he was outed for not being Hasidic. And, you know, he had like fake payas and, you know, all of that stuff. But And why did he do this? I guess he wanted to um, promote the idea that you can be religious and gay. And, uh, you know, we've, we've spoken about this extensively on the show in the past. And I was really, like, s- taken by this because this was, like, seemingly well-meaning, right? He wasn't trying mm-hmm. to, like, m- mm-hmm. be weird about it. And, uh, like, he thought that it was going to genuinely do good for the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. But he didn't mm-hmm. realize that this is not how you go about doing things. Well, it's it's interesting because it's on the one hand, it's not really a cultural appropriation story. So this is somebody Jewish, gay and Jewish. So so that's the piece that I find fascinating is that like Or is it? You know, what's the line of cultural appropriation, right? If you're something and then you're you go into uh a, another part of the culture that is deeper into it than you otherwise would be is that considered something that's not right um even if you're trying to do it for the right reasons well i guess that's another question because with cultural appropriation there's this whole sort of oppression hierarchy where there's no such thing as a you know black person dressing like they're white but there could be something where a white person is sort of dressed up as if they're black if that makes sense where it, so i'm wondering would it be considered, I guess there, you just wouldn't get this within Judaism. You would not get a Haredi Jew in, you know, a miniskirt to make some sort of point because da, 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 they're not going to be wearing a miniskirt because they don't believe in wearing a miniskirt, right? So yeah. you can't really have it in both directions, but it's not, it's a totally different framework. So I guess what I would say is that cultural appropriation conversations, it's a whole different discourse, a whole different thing. And that this, whatever's going on is something else. It might be a problem, but it's not the same do, problem. Do you think it was a problem? I think it's odd. I guess, like, again, I'm stuck on this question of motivation. Like, it seems that if you want to say that you can be both things, why you'd be better off amplifying the voices of somebody who's out there and is both things. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if it helps or it hurts that this person was observant to begin with, right? This wasn't just like okay. uh, a totally, totally secular Jew. That so was then that nothing. seems um, interesting. To me, this seems like a type of a political activism that is maybe like a questionable choice, but it does seem more like political activism than like um, dressing up in somebody. It's not. It doesn't really seem like a your culture is not my costume type dynamic. Yeah, I think what he was trying to get at my my guess from whatever i've read from there is that he trying to spur others right there there aren't that many if but spur any, them to do what to come out right he says like if you're a chassid and okay. you're gay you should see look i'm a chassid and i'm gay you should you, you know be, be you can be both you can be proud you can come out and you can do all of this 
I, I don't know. Like, it's just, I mean, he probably did it for the likes and for the follows and for out there also. That to be the answer. Maybe just yeah. as much. But like, yeah. suppose this movement actually came about, right? And there's hundreds of gay Hasidic individuals that are coming out and that have created this movement of saying we are gay we are out this is part of our life and now it's wonderful like the world is a better place for it and then you find out that your entire outing was based on something fake right if if the me too movement right which has done untold good to the to the world right i don't know if this is a great analogy there's a lot of people that have been uh, rightfully exposed as being sexually uh, sexual harassers and predators and all of this stuff mm-hmm. because of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. If you find out that the thing that spurred the Me Too movement was a fake story, right? Would you feel like the movement now has to dissolve? Would you feel like it's all based on a lie? Okay, Would can you I believe can that I just, you came out? I'm going to have to yeah. pick apart this analogy a Please. little bit because if. <laughs> If it turned out that it was a fake story, what that would mean in a Me Too context would mean that there was somebody who had been falsely accused of abuse, which is always no. Upsetting. Somebody just made it up. Somebody just yeah. You mean like oh, like a totally fictitious story? Yeah. So not that like it turns out, lo and behold, Harvey Weinstein was a delightful person there. No, um, but what I was going to say is like so if it was totally fictional. I mean, yeah, there I don't think it matters so much. To me, this seems like the only reason this is a problem is a because it's silly. And, you know, activism that's that silly, like, it just seems a little ridiculous if somebody's not orthodox and they're dressed as if they are. It's always, I mean, that's a curiosity, you know, that's why it's a news story. But this idea that it's like, that the problem is at the level of doing harm to orthodox people by by somebody who is observant, but not quite as observant, dressing as if they are. Now, I, that to me doesn't seem like the angle. It more seems like... To me, the problem seems much more at the level of that this is unlikely to create a whole movement, that this is unlikely yeah. to lead to a great wave of coming out of extremely religious people. I, I don't disagree. I think you are 100% right. I think he was misguided in his attempt. I was just trying yeah. to like interrogate yeah. this idea sure. of like, well, suppose it happened, right? Yeah. Eventually, he would end up like being exposed as like yeah. being a non-Hasidic individual, right? What does that say about the entirety of the movement or whatever that like it just feels false and weird and bad and like be, maybe you should rethink your choices of doing it. I think I'm with you on that one. And with that, let's go to your interview with Hadley Freeman. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Hello, everybody. Uh, so I'm interviewing Hadley Freeman today, which is a dream come true. Um, so I'm so excited that she has come to speak with us here on Bonjour High. So for the for the uninitiated, Hadley Freeman uh, writes for the Sunday Times in the UK and was previously at The Guardian. She's written for basically every top-notch uh, English language publication you can think of, but uh, CJN readers will especially want to check out her columns in the Jewish Chronicle. And she's written several books, uh, among them the acclaimed uh, House of Glass, which is a history of her Jewish family. 
And um, her most recent book, Good Girls, uh, combines a personal story about her own uh, past struggle uh, with the eating disorder anorexia and an investigation of what is and isn't understood about this eating disorder. Um, And she and I have remarkably similar backgrounds in various ways, which I will try not to make the whole conversation about, even though we could talk about various um, Manhattan girls schools and their specific 1990s qualities, probably to no end. But um, I'll start with a a question not not about that, Um, which is so uh, first of all, welcome. Oh, thank you, Phoebe. Excitement is all on my side. I'm a huge fan. So this is a great thrill for me. But I'm a huge fan. Ah, okay. (laughs) So um, first off, you're an extremely prolific author and journalist who's covered all manner of topics. How did you decide to make your, your most recent project um, an investigation of anorexia? Uh, so I had tried to not write this book for a long time. I thought it would just be narcissistic and pointless. Who wants to read another memoir by another sodding journalist? Um, and then once I finally accepted, okay, maybe I am going to do this because so many of my friends suddenly were asking me what to do to help their teenage daughters. Um, I thought, I don't want this just to be about me. I don't want it to be my usual thing of me, me, me. Um, I want it to be me actually like going out and talking to people and trying to get answers. So that was how I did it. It was try to try to stave off as much narcissism as possible. What, I guess like, what, what do you think is the misunderstanding about anorexia that is most important to correct? Because you talk about a few things that I think people often you know, we'll say it's the fashion industry or it's people whose mothers are on a diet and it's this or that. What What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding that you um, are looking to correct? Um, the main thing is that people always think anorexia is about wanting to be thin, um, which it's not. It's about wanting to look ill. It's a way of, uh, for girls and women primarily, that's 90% of the sufferers of anorexia. There's 10% who are male, but it's mainly an illness of by females. It's a way for girls and women to tell people that they're unhappy and that something is wrong without them having to articulate it. Because I think a lot of girls and women find it very hard to ask for help or to say that they have these feelings of shame or self-loathing or anxiety, which is a big one. Um, And instead, they try to make themselves look ill so that people will understand it without them saying it. I I do think that's really interesting because I feel like you often um, get people talking about like, if somebody who's very thin, and they say naturally thin, whatever that means, mm-hmm. um, will say that they're being they've been accused of or like some celebrities been accused of anorexia as if they're being accused of having some sort of heightened form of vanity, which just always seems ridiculous, because it's, you know, it's a disease, it's not um, a heightened form of vanity. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I could relate to a lot of what you wrote about, um, because I grew up I, I'm in Canada now, clearly, but um, I grew up in New York City, I went to a different Possibly. You did not go to Spence. I went to Brearley. Totally, totally different. (laughs) Um, In the 1990s. And I dealt with like lower stakes versions of Mm -hmm. what your book Mm -hmm. is about. I'm also now an adult with young children Mm -hmm. myself, um, daughters. So the stakes are higher in that sense. Um, When I think about if they compared with if I you have a daughter and sons, is that right? Yeah, I have um, twin boys and a daughter three oh I'm like barely <laughs> upright with the two um but, but yeah I mean I guess like I don't think about my own body very much these days mm. like somebody yesterday 
tried to get up on the streetcar because they thought I was pregnant because I was wearing like a dress that I think I might have worn <laughs> while pregnant. And I was like, I mean, it was funny, but like, I, you know, I go about my day. And if I had been 13 at the time, this would have been a totally different story. Um, so I guess this is a setup to two questions, though. Um, the first is that there's this perception of anorexia as a disease specific to environments like a Manhattan girls school, mm-hmm. sort of like a privileged mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate inaccurate what where does that fall with things like this um well i would say it's uh yes and no is the unhelpful answer which is um it did used to be seen as something that was only suffered by the privileged and now it is an illness that you see it across all socioeconomic groups and even when i was in hospital in the 90s there were girls from all kinds of backgrounds in hospital with me including very uh poor rural backgrounds and a couple of girls who'd been in foster care all their lives. So it's, you know, it's, it was across the board. Um, it does mainly of, affect Caucasian girls and women. And no one entirely knows why. I did try to look into this. Um, you know, bul- uh, bulimia is suffered across the um, black community. You do find it among black women and ac- with Asian women too. But you don't get as much anorexia as you do with Caucasian women. So there's a lot, there's different things there. I think in terms of the high-pressured schools, yes, you do get a concentration there, but it's not limited to there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there can be possible reasons for that, possibly environmental factors in terms of, you know, those girls are taught, you know, encouraged to have a kind of conformity um, that, you know, it can be a very anxious provoke, an anxiety-provoking environment. And anorexia, I do think, is an articulation of anxiety. Um uh, and it can also be social contagion. That can be, it, you know, it's not so much that you catch it from each other, but you learn that you can express your unhappiness in this way. So you see one girl in, you know, the ninth grade is suddenly getting out of school because, you know, she's going to hospital because she's got anorexia. You think, well, I'm unhappy. And it's not even a conscious thing. It just becomes a way to articulate it. Yeah, you know, every culture has its languages. Mm-hmm. And in those schools, that is a cultural language. But that doesn't mean it's just in those schools. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's really interesting. And it's making me think of, a, sorry, but a Seinfeld line where they're talking about, like, how children are mean to each other and elaine says something that girls don't beat each other up they just bully another one until she gets an eating disorder and it seems it's it's well put um but the other so the other thing i wanted to talk about is just sort of like the 90s and even the early 2000s were really known for you know heroin chic Mm low-rise jeans and in new york city tasty delight um which was like fake ice cream i I don't know if that still exists but that was practically (laughs) Like now, now I eat ice cream, but I, I remember there being large amounts of Tasty Delight. Just everybody in my family was always eating this, um, what, and we never knew what it was. Um, right, right. But um, but I also, so I'm wondering: is it better for girls today, or does the whole thing with TikTok and Instagram and social media make it what, if not worse? Um, does it cancel it out? Um, I think uh, it's kind of almost the same in a lot of ways. Uh, So when I was ill in the 90s, like you say, was the heroin chic and Kate Moss was becoming famous. And so, yes, that was being fetishized as a look. I think now when I talk when I talk to girls now and I talk to a lot for the book, um, girls who either were currently suffering from anorexia or recovered. What they say is they look on Instagram and it's not so much even about looking at thin girls. It's about there being only one kind of acceptable girl. And if you don't feel you fit into that, if you're not the pretty pouty girl with the, you know, beachy waves and, you know, looking sexy and wearing a skimpy vest top and doing a little selfie, if you're not comfortable with that or you don't feel you fit into that, you kind of want to opt out entirely and making yourself really skinny, you know, wanting to, you know, revert into childhood, all all those kind of things, which are part of anorexia um, becomes an increasingly tempting option. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that that's really what I thought was so fascinating. 
everything about your book was really fascinating. And also just for those who have not yet read it, it's really funny, which I feel like it's hard to explain this without making it seem like I'm, you know, trivializing the very serious topic. But um, yeah, it's it's just a really enjoyable read. But um, I'm just wondering about like sort of how much the underlying problem here is really just sexism and not in the sense just of beauty standards, but rather this idea that it's unappealing to be a grown woman. And yeah. I also um, read and enjoyed Victoria Smith's book, Hags, which is about mm-hmm. sort of older women, older defined as like, you could even be a 27 year old older woman, you know, right. um, but, um, or just like the whole sort of Karen phenomenon. And I'm just wondering how much of anorexia is sort of about a, a this part of a broader sense in which a lot of girls want to not be a grown woman in our society. I mean, a hundred percent. You know, like I said, the majority of anorexia is are, are, and anorexia suffers are girls and women, and it almost invariably comes on in puberty. So it is a fear of growing up. And for me, it was very much a fear of being sexualized, a fear of sexuality, um, and a fear of leaving my mother behind, um, and also a fear of becoming my mother. Not that there's anything specifically wrong with my mother, um, and I think all those contradictory things you know you don't want to leave your mother you want to stay with your mother but also you want to leave your mother and i think they all play a part and also being a woman doesn't seem that much fun um a lot of the time like certainly in my generation we were looking at you know my mother's generation you know a lot of those women didn't work they you know were seemed quite bored at home and you know older women who wants to be an older woman now like you know you're dismissed like you say you're a karen you're a turf you're a this you're a that there's nothing more repulsive really I think to a lot of girls than the or unimaginable even that they will one day be a middle aged woman themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, far better to <laughs> yeah. to stay in childhood and in youth. Yeah, yeah. As somebody who's going to be forty in about a month, uh, it's, there's That's no true. there's no other direction it can go in. So uh, better come to terms with this. Um, yeah, I, I guess so. So you mentioned the whole sort of turf thing. So I'm going to take that as an opening to ask about. Um, so turf is an acronym that means trans-exclusionary radical feminist. It is also used colloquially, derogatorily, whatever you want to say, to talk about sort of transphobia, including coming from people who are not feminists, but also about a certain type of maybe a woman who's, you know, not as hip and with it as she might be. So it's a complicated word that we're not going to fully, fully be unpacking now, but I want to talk about the relationship between anorexia and gender dysphoria, because I read Lionel Shriver's piece in Unheard, which both of us also write for, um, about where she, it almost seemed like she was saying that your book should have been all about um, trans stuff and not eating disorders, because the thing now is trans stuff and not eating disorders. So why would you be so 90s in your thinking? And I mean, I'm as somebody who's very 90s in my own thinking, I don't see this as a problem, but... What is the relationship between gender dysphoria, a.k.a. in this context, somebody born a girl feeling that they are actually a boy, mm-hmm. and anorexia, somebody developing like a woman wishing they weren't? What is the relationship? So it's it's funny that uh, Lionel wrote that it should mainly be about uh, the trans stuff. I think that would have given my publishers a heart attack because it was hard enough you know, sort of convincing people that I should put any gender stuff in the book. And the truth is that I didn't, I wasn't planning to write about gender stuff in this book. I thought, please, for five minutes of one day, can I not be thinking about this stuff? Um, But then as I was writing it, this report came out that said 
at JIDS, which is the NHS's only gender clinic for children in England and Wales, which is in fact about to be shut down after safety concerns, um, it said that uh, in some age groups, in like the 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds, it was 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 70% girls, um, six to one girls in those groups. Um, And I thought that's kind of interesting and strange because that's also a very common age that girls develop anorexia. I developed it when I was 14. And so I then started talking to various doctors who'd worked at JIDS um, and other doctors beyond um, to talk about the relationship between anorexia and gender dysphoria for teenage girls. Um, because it, certainly in the UK, um, for, young, for young people, it is primarily girls who are identifying as trans, so teenage girls, um, rather than boys, males. Um, and all the doctors said the same thing, which is that the emotions that used to be expressed back in the 90s, back in the old days, used to be expressed through anorexia, such as fear of growing up, fear of being sexualized, uh, feeling like you don't fit in as a, a girl, feeling like you're not pretty enough, um, anxiety, um, body self-loathing, sense of shame about your sexuality. All of those are, are often now being expressed through gender dysphoria. And one of the doctors I spoke to, Anna Hutchinson, put it really well, where she said, every generation has a symptom pool. And you feel these feelings that young people have felt since time immemorial, which is like anxiety about growing up, leaving your mother behind, you know, wanting to separate from your parents, wanting to distinguish yourself from your family, etc. And you go down to the symptom pool. And, you know, back in the 80s, uh, it was anorexia. And then the 90s, there was bulimia. And in the 2000s, there was cutting. And now we've got gender dysphoria. And of course, the difference now is that gender dysphoria is validated by the greater world. People are saying this this is your true identity. And I can totally accept for some adult, adults, you know, that is their identity. They should live with it. Teenage girls are very different from, for example, an adult male who wants to transition. There are different feelings that are going on behind it. I sort of find it very strange that they're all discussed as though they're one, you know, um, you know, you know, very similar umbrella group. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, but people are all being fed this cultural message about you can change yourself. You can opt out if you change your gender. Um, you know, anorexia is all about opting out. It is a way of trying to not be a woman for whatever reason. You know, for me, it was definitely a fear of leaving my mother and a fear of sexuality. Um, and those, and when I look at the girls around me, I live in a part of North London. I don't know what the neighborhood equivalent in Toronto would be. In New York, it would be Brooklyn. And there are so many girls in my neighborhood who I see is 13 to 17 walk around these big baggy clothes they're quite skinny binding their breasts their hair is cut really short it's often quite thin you know they look like the girls i was in hospital with Mm -hmm. like there are overlaps here and one of the former doctors at jits uh smuggled me out a secret paper from within jits you know showing how high the rates of anorexia is for these kids um it's exactly the same as suicidal ideation and while gender activists will go on and on about, oh my God, you know, we have to listen to trans kids because they have these suicidal thoughts. You know, the same number are suffering from anorexia, but that somehow doesn't get mentioned. That's oh, not a convenient... This is all act. so complicated. Um, yeah, and it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like I live in a pretty similar part of Toronto, although what I notice is a lot of very, very gender conforming seeming teenagers who fly in the face of what I read on the internet. So it's all hard to hard to parse. But the other aspect of this I just think about is sort of sexual orientation and just kind of gender normativity in general, because what I've seen discussed is the idea that a girl who would have been a lesbian in a previous generation, perhaps a butch lesbian in a previous generation might in this generation identify as um, 
a trans boy yeah. or non-binary. Whereas, but but then it seems like with anorexia, if anything, the stereotype would be that this would be a straight girl who is, you know, I mean, obviously the really, really misguided stereotype would be that it's about getting boys. But um, <laughs> although, although I did just read in The Guardian, there was, um, I think it was Amelia Tate's essay about, it was some essay about like, not eating because a, a boy didn't like her or something. But anyway, the point is, um, there does seem like a bit of a, like things don't entirely align in that regard because, well, anyway, maybe you should say, cause I don't no, have yeah, any no, idea. I agree. You know, the, the issue of gender nonconformity and being a lesbian is definitely a massive factor. And for a lot of these girls who feel that they should be boys, and that isn't so much of a factor with anorexia, although there were gay girls in a hospital with me. Um, I actually just read um, Elliot Page's memoir. Um, I don't know if you've read it yet. Not yet, but I'm sure I'll have to for some reason or another. It is really sad in a lot of ways. Um, And I interviewed Elliot when he was still Ellen a decade ago. And um, yeah, to see that journey, because here we have someone who was gay, you know, knew they knew that something was, you know, not something was wrong, but something that they didn't entirely understand about themselves was going on from an early age. And started to think they were probably gay and was very gender nonconforming and internalized her parents' anxiety about that. I'll use female pronouns for pre-transition, as Paige does. Um, internalized her parents' anxiety about that, internalized homophobia that she heard around her and that she experienced at school, was anorexic and cut herself for a long time, um, had that kind of self-loathing, self-punishing aspect to her. And then and then transitions. And... Um, and I'm not doubting Paige's words, Paige's testimony or anything, but you see a lot of these factors that are playing anything. The narrative isn't necessarily always that simple. Like if you transition, everything's going to be fine. Um, and yeah, there is nothing wrong with being a butch girl or a butch woman. A lot of the coolest women I know are very butch and gender nonconforming. Um, the idea that if you are not feminine, you need to change gender is the most regressive. Um, well, this is something This is something that I struggle with when thinking about these issues, because on the one hand, I think there are people who are trans. I, I believe that. I, I don't find that, you know, particularly hard to wrap my head around. What I do find hard to wrap my head around, though, is this idea that there is such a thing as a woman comfortable with being a woman, which seems like, I, I'm sure there are some out there, but is that the majority, even among, you know, straight women, I don't, I don't know that it is. Um, and I think that's complicated. And I think that's really something that your book gets at. Um, but I'm going to change away from gender. Okay. But modernity, but modernity all the same. Ozempic, has that changed the conversation? Because it seems like the whole, like, like if there's now something that people can inject and then they're thin, does that change eating disorders? Well, I think it's going to be very hard to figure out for a lot of doctors or for a lot of people to resist Ozempic and for them to not abuse it. You know, already anorexics abuse thyroid medication. That's partly what led to Karen Carpenter's death, where she was abusing various thyroid medications and also uh, laxative medications. So this is another way that people can use to um, lose weight. With anorexia, it's sort of complicated. Yes, some might use it, but you know, there you know there were diet pills and stuff when I was not eating. It never occurred to me to use those. I mean, it, it there's something it's anorexia. There's it's very self punishing. 
So you're not going to take the easy way out. But yes, as the bar gets ever lower in what is considered thin, it, it's going to be harder to identify anorexia perhaps you know earlier. Um, and it's going to give people, it's just going to give make a lot of girls and women unhappy with their bodies, which is not the same as anorexia. It's mm-hmm. just... It just makes everybody feel a bit more depressed, basically. Mm-hmm. That actually is, that's another thing I'd want to ask about, is just sort of like how much of this is like a black and white people either have a severe eating disorder or they don't, and how much, like what, what do you make of the concept of like disordered eating? Does that relate or is it its own thing? Um, well, like yeah. is it a spectrum? Well, I, I mean, I see anorexia as a lot like drug addiction. You know, there are some people who are full on, you know, mm-hmm. lifelong heroin addicts, and then there's some people who dabble um, and some people who do coke occasionally at parties, and when they do, they go too far, and then they don't do it again for three months or whatever. I don't know. Um, I think this is the same with eating disorders. Some people are really bad. Some people can like, you know, do dabble with fasting, and it's not a big deal for them. And other people, you know, really they burn when they get too close, and they have to step back, and they mm-hmm. have the ability to step back. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. But there's only some who need hospitalization, and. You know, the ones who who are really bad, that's its own mindset, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if it's a man who's doing the fasting, he's optimizing himself to be a tech bro. Indeed. He's Jack Dorsey and, you know, living his best life. Um, so because this is uh, Bonjour High, I would be remiss not to talk about Jews. Yay! Jews, Jews. Um, <laughs> so, Jews. Um, I... <laughs> No, that's not the question, um, the, although roughly. Um, so I guess I was just wondering what the relationship is, if any, between Jewishness and eating disorders. Because in Good Girls, you mentioned having not met any observant uh, Jewish or Muslim, I believe you write, patients yeah. um, during your own hospital stays. But you also write um, in the chapter about the theories that people gave mm-hmm. um, that being Jewish, that you're being Jewish was mm-hmm. um, a reason. So... Yeah. Where does Jewishness fit into all this? I have theories, but I'm going to hold back. Oh, good. I, well, I'm glad to hear your theories. Um, but I want to hear your theories first, if it relates or not. Well, it, I never, there were never any other Jewish girls in hospital with me. I was the, always the only Jewish girl. But that's, I think, largely because I'm in England mm-hmm. and there are fewer Jews here. <laughs> if I was hospitalized in New York, I would have met plenty. Um, that's you know, true. You gra- would have. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, my grandmother on my father's side definitely had eating issues. Um, she was very unhappy all her life. She'd escaped um, the Holocaust. She came to America and married my grandfather, who she didn't know at all. And she was unhappy all her life, just hoping to go back to France, which she never did. And she expressed it through food. Like she would she would eat one croissant a day, really. It was kind of her diet. Like she was. That's about the number of croissants a day I eat, but with other food. But yes, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Yes. She would just sort of nibble on French food, like to mm-hmm. get a taste of home mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. not eat anything. And she was very tiny. So she certainly expressed her unhappiness about, you know, what had happened with her life um, through food. And there's certainly a lot of eating sores in my family. But, you know, I never entirely bought the whole inherited trauma thing um, that some doctors believe, you know, that the inherited trauma from the Holocaust, because I did lose family in the Holocaust. But I'd, I want to hear your theories, Phoebe, because I, I could never figure it out. Um, I have a lot of theories because, oh, like I said, I grew up in Manhattan where, you know, Jewish women with eating disorders or close to an eating disorder mm-hmm. were pretty much everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So, OK, let's start. Uh, one would be, I mean, kosher rules for more observant Jews would be right. one place to right. think about this. And right. I, I think That's I even true. saw some paper that was about this, that like if you're used to having to divide food between um 
acceptable and not, which most people aren't, yes. you know, yes. that's baseline going to be an issue. Um, Holocaust memory, not so much in terms of like inherited trauma, but just seeing these images of these emaciated bodies, which is something that I remember yes. seeing from a very young age, which I don't know that non-Jews either mm-hmm. are seeing or are giving that much thought to, but seeing people who look like yourself, like that would have been you if you'd been there. And that, you know, that's like, I think that's... Um, as an Ashkenazi Jew, something that has, you know, played in my mind. Mm -hmm. But also, I'm just thinking about the sort of strange relationship of white Jewish women to white beauty standards. um, And this idea of kind of like, so this would fly in the face of the whole, like, if it's not about beauty, but certainly like initial dieting, what would sort of be an impetus for that or for the many, many, many Jewish women of a certain age, I know in places like New York who, you know, mm-hmm. are watching their weight to fit into their high school jeans for what reason I cannot say. Although I do, in fairness, um, know a lot of non-Jewish women doing the same. But this idea of like almost meeting white beauty standards, but not yeah. quite. Well, that's, that is very true. That is a really interesting point. So I hadn't thought about it. And yes, you're totally right about the kosher thing. When food becomes about something other than pleasure and nutrition you get you have a very weird way of looking at it i mean for me it was becoming a vegetarian when i was four which is kind of similar to kosher it's suddenly it's what food is acceptable and what isn't mm-hmm. uh, yes definitely with the starving bodies which is something i hadn't really thought about we were looking at those bodies all the time in hebrew school temple manual upper east side um and you know those are the good jews you know, mm-hmm. so, you know in, a, in a weird sort of mm-hmm. way like you know, those are the blameless ones mm-hmm. um you know and um the beauty standards, yes. I mean, even though I grew up in Manhattan, the Upper East Side, um, obviously there were Jews in my class, but I had very, um, like a goyish circle really around me. And I do remember- Are you feeling- sure you were not literally there when I was in middle school? Sorry, but yes, go on, go on. <laughs> I remember feeling like, I, I thought of myself as like a dark little troll next to all these blonde girls who, you know, play tennis and went to the Hamptons. And my dad- Used to, like my dad loves saying things like this, like, you know, oh, like if I would go to someone's country club for a weekend, if they invite me to the house in the Hamptons, my dad would say, well, they don't allow Jews. So don't tell them you're <laughs> Jewish or like any, anywhere we go, you know, they don't allow Jews. They don't allow Jews, um, which which is, you know, I always found fascinating. But also it did make me feel like I was I was basically Elaine in a world of Gwyneth Paltrow's is how I always saw myself, <laughs> even uh, though they're both actually, I think, about- Jewish. Well, yeah. well they're somewhat. Ish. Yes, fair enough, fair enough. Um, and when I came to England, I was the only Jew in my class, I think, at school. And so you do feel a bit like a freak. So it's not even about, it's not about wanting to look good. This is what I always try to say. It's about wanting to opt out. Mm-hmm. So like, like, I was both terrified of boys liking me. Like, terrified if a boy liked me and terrified if a boy didn't like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no mm-hmm. So anorexia is a way to opt out of it. And, and definitely being a Jewish woman, you know, I grew up watching Woody Allen movies. Now it's Judd Apatow movies. It's always Jewish man wanting blonde woman. Like, that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that is the shtick of every single Jewish rom-com, um, except for Crossing Delancey. Um, so... You know, you also know, like, you're not a desirable thing, like, as a Jewish mm-hmm. girl. I hope, I, I feel like with Broad City, that's, like, I have this hope for the, the Broad City generation. Um, the, okay, so I, I have a lot of questions that relate to all of this. Um, <laughs> and I'm just trying to think how to start. Because, I mean, <laughs> one is um, just, like, okay, so just, I, I have sitcom questions, too. But um, I guess I'm just wondering, like, as a parent. So I have mm-hmm. daughters, like... Mm-hmm. 
And one of my children has food allergies. So then there's a whole extra thing of like things that we, you know, so we have to, to a certain extent, you know, avoid certain things. And I don't like the idea of avoiding anything, but then, and my, my whole before having kids was like, oh, I will say nothing is off limits. And it's like, now I have to, you know, but, um, how as a parent does one approach this? What, what works? The eating. Yeah. The eating element. Well, it, it's, I'm so, I mean, I'm very aware of how bad I am because I basically, it's, it's sort of, it must be part of the anorexia. I'm sort of almost dyslexic around cooking. Like I genuinely have no idea how to put food together. I'll look in the fridge and just think, I don't know, like <laughs> have pasta again, um, which is not good. Fortunately, my children's father is a wonderful cook and loves food. And I very much encourage the children to like, you go cook with daddy now. Um, but I, I also don't want my daughter to think of women as inept or, you know, repulsed by food or whatever it is. So I do try to, you know, you don't want to make a big thing about it. But the main thing I try to do is to take emotion out of food. So all those kind of things like eat another bite from mommy, or how could you not eat that mommy made this for you, like to take away all emotions, because there will come a point when the children are teenagers and the way teenagers separate from their parents is to, you know, try to separate emotionally. And you don't want the food to be the thing that they're separating from. You don't want mm-hmm. that to be the language you, that they communicate with you. So that's one thing. I also never, ever talk about how I look, how I feel in my body with the children. It's just a total irrelevancy. And I never say to my daughter, you know, you're getting so heavy or whatever when I pick her up. I mean, she's she's three. But, you know, any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't try to force her into thinking, into wearing dresses, not to let, not to make her think girls do this, boys do that. Mm-hmm. Wear whatever you mm-hmm. want. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Wear the cute dress, but fine. Wear the disgusting. <laughs> oh, clothes. I mean, most of the yeah. My older daughter is four, and most of the four-year-old girls are demanding impractical dresses. Um, so and you know, they, and they'll and my daughter yeah. is now finding that because she's watching all the Disney yeah. princess movies, yeah. and Elsa now wants an Elsa. Oh, Elsa! And all that after having insisted on just wearing her older brother's um, cast-offs, you know, up until now, suddenly the truck leggings are out. Elsa costs in so. But to just make it like, well, fine, there's no one way of being, you know, do what you want. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I also wanted to just ask you, um, before turning to pop culture, just briefly, what gets somebody well? Like, what what's the, you know, because I thought that was something interesting you talk about in your book. But um, for those who have not yet read it, what what are some Um, thoughts on that? Yeah, for me, the main thing was keeping up with my schoolwork. I, like, I'm like i so adamant about that. And when parents email me to ask what they should do with their daughters, I always say, don't let her drop out of school. Certainly in the 90s when I was in hospital, that was what all doctors advocated was all about focus on your recovery. And thank God I didn't do that because it just always meant I was aware of the outside world. I couldn't um, collude with the anorexia that eating disorder is the whole universe. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew something was going on out there. And also it helped to hear about what was going on out there when friends would write to me about what they were doing on their school trips or you know you know who was you know who said something funny at school or my sister was doing stuff at school it you know I hated it it made me angry and I wanted Mm -hmm. to tell them go jump but it it did help to know that there was a world going on and that I was missing out on it um and what really helped in the end was I was in hospital so I was in hospital nine times and this is the last time and I was in hospital with women who were very, very sick, who were all like in their 40s and 50s and had been in hospital their whole lives. And at first I normalized it. I thought, okay, this is going to be my life now. I'll just be in hospital for the rest of my life. And then after a while, I suddenly thought, and then it became a reality, like seeing, like, unless I do something, this is literally going to be my life. And I thought, I don't, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 40 years old. 
And I'm really grateful that I'm not. I think that, well, that's wonderful to to hear. And I think that's a very good message. Um, I'm going to shift gears because I have to ask you this because this is something I think about a lot. What is the most Jewish rom-com? Is there a most Jewish rom-com? Well, you know, obviously, aside from everybody, Alan, basically. Okay. One I love the most is Crossing Delancey. I just think it's the most magical movie. And I love that the Jewish woman is the object of passion in it for both a Jewish man and a non-Jewish man. Um, as I it just, is in life. As, as, as When we walk down the street, the, thus, <laughs> yes. If it's Delancey. Um, it, I, I really do love it. I mean, obviously, you know, you could say Annie Hall or, um, or I don't even know what Hannah and her sisters are saying, but um, uh, for me, it's got to be Crossing Delancey. All right. Well, that's a that's a great recommendation. I have not seen that since being a little child. Um, I'm going to have to rewatch it. I'm going to have to rewatch it. I have one more question for you. Jonah Hill. What was with his name thing? Okay. That's so fucking weird. Sorry. That was... <laughs> so weird so i to this day i really don't know so you so- asked you asked jonah hill about his um i want to say maiden name that's uh, his his original his real name his real name i was interviewing him i think for wolf of wall street um and i this was before his sister was famous so the only reason i knew his real surname is you know i just googled him beforehand i was on wikipedia his name mm-hmm. is jonah Feld. and i always ask jews when i interview them why do you change your name like i i asked mel brooks i asked um uh, john stewart like i'll always ask them i think i, I just think it's an interesting mm-hmm. subject so i said to him why have you changed your name and he freaked out like he <laughs> Like, it was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. Like before, he'd been all like, "Oh yeah, Leo and I, and Marty and I, and Misty." Like he was just all like, <laughs> giving the anecdotes, and he just went silent for like twenty seconds or something, which is a long time when you're in a room with somebody. And he just whispered, "Can we not do this?" I was like, <laughs> God, are you on the run from the Gestapo? Like that's that's what? incredible. That's and this was in. I think I looked this up. Prior to our speaking, 2014 was it? Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. It was, it was so weird. Like, yeah. I, I, I really can't understand. Like, like particularly someone like Jonah Hill, like, you just think your whole shtick is that you're Jewish. Like, that is how you're. Like, you are a Jewish like com- comedy guy. Like, you play <laughs> Jews in movies. Like, I just don't understand. You know, okay, you don't want to have like overly ethnic name or whatever, but like. I don't understand why you would do that. It's so weird. Now that his sister is famous and she's Beanie yes. Feldstein. But they are, they to me are the Charlie Sheen <laughs> and Emilio Estevez of the new generation. Because Emilio kept his Spanish name and kept his, his real name. And Charlie is Carlos Estevez. And Charlie wanted everyone to know he's Martin Sheen's son. So he took his mm-hmm. father's stage name and anglicized his first name. But they are brothers. They look so much alike and they have completely different names. That blew it's- my mind when I learned that. Um, it's about so, Charlie Sheen, yeah. It's it so is. weird. Uh, I mean, I love asking why actors change their name. I talked about it with Nicolas Cage, too. And that was because he said he got teased, from, you know, because he was Nicolas Coppola. Um, mm-hmm. and, and everyone just assumed he got his jobs because of his uncle, which maybe he did at first, but he deserves <laughs> it. Um, uh, so I, I always think it's interesting hearing these stories, but like the Jonah Hill one, I'm never going to get over that. It was too strange. It is. Um, wow. It, it absolutely blew my mind. And it just, yeah, it seemed like a very strange thing, especially uh, to have if you have a sibling who has the name, it's like, who are you fooling? A famous sibling, I mean, especially. So, like, was he annoyed when she became famous then? Did he want her to be Beanie Hill? Like, I'm <laughs> It's very close to Benny Hill then, which seems like a, <laughs> a 
dangerous road to go down. Um, well, Hadley, thank you so, so much uh, for coming on Bonjour Kai. This has been really wonderful. I'm glad to finally um, meet you, albeit through a screen. Um, thank you, Phoebe. This has been such a thrill and so fun. So thank you so much. And now it's time the show for our Nachas. Phoebe, what's your Nachas this week? Nachasayim this time. Okay, so two of them. We've got uh, one that's the more serious and one that's the more silly, although neither are serious in the sense of like upsetting. Um, the serious one is an article I read in the New York Times with the headline, A Bear That Looked Like a Raccoon and Had a Dangerous Appetite. And apparently, uh, this is an article by Carolyn Wilkie, uh, about an animal that existed about 30 million years ago in what is now North Dakota. So maybe some of them, you know, also in Canada, I wouldn't be surprised that looked. So there is um, a drawing of what it may have looked like. And it almost looks like some weird mix of like a tiger, a bear, an otter, a raccoon. I don't a fox. Like it looks like basically some sort of weird um, pastiche of all mammals and as somebody with a lot of experience in the raccoon realm, we have um, a, a community, let's say, in the yard, a, a family, if not a, a bunch of families of actual, you know, modern day raccoons. I love a good story about raccoons. And I feel like this is, if not specifically Jewish, very Canadian, because these these creatures may have been uh, hanging out in Canada. And uh, that's that's one. So I, I recommend these creatures and the article about the creatures. My other is that if you're in Canada and want to watch television and you watch Pluto for the Frasier, and if you, like me, realized after... So I thought there were only eight seasons of Frasier, and I was watching them and thinking, okay, that's that's how Frasier ends, blah, blah, blah. No, I had completely forgotten that there are three more seasons. There's season nine, season 10, season 11. Now they've added them to the free streaming, so you can... Find out finally what what's going to happen with Niles and Daphne. And for me, it's as if it's all new, even though I've seen the show in the past. Um, it's it's new episodes of an old show. I, I'm just waiting for the new episodes of uh, Fraser: The Next Generation and Fraser: Deep are, Space Nine. But they are Fraser so Fraser, Voyager. Fra- Fraser <laughs> is going to be rebooted. I think so. There, it literally like you're joking, but I think there is supposed to be this and. Um, Bebe Newarth, who played Lilith, there's our finally a Jewish tie-in, and um, I, I think she'll probably be on it. So that'll be. Um, I hope that happens. Anyway, yeah, wonderful uh, pronunciation of that name. <laughs> I am going to go much simpler and much lighter. It's small, but it's it's came hot on the heels of uh, news that one of my favorite restaurants uh, was closing because kosher restaurants don't tend to stay open for that long, and that it's really sad. Um, came a tweet that a friend of the program sent in uh, from Talia Reese. Talia Reese is a comedian in New York, I believe. And she goes, you know, it's a good Chinese restaurant when you see Chinese people eating there. You know, it's a good Indian restaurant when you see Indian people eating there. You know, it's a good kosher restaurant when you see Goyam eating there. <laughs> and, and more truth cannot be found on the internet than that um, statement. And so a hat tip to you, uh, Michael, for uh, sending that along. And uh, that is my nachas for this week. And uh, it's sad to see Nerudable in Teaneck, New Jersey closing, but such is life. Phoebe, great show as always. Uh, thanks for that interview and thanks for uh, chatting as always. Thank you, Obvious. It's been great.
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending June 24th, Shabbat Parashat Korach. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We really would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we grow the show. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca.